Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And laughing of children and girls and the listless tranquility of the warriors, the whole scene had an effect too lively and picturesque ever to be forgotten. We stopped not far from the Indian camp, and having invited some of the chiefs and warriors to dinner, placed before them a sumptuous repast of biscuit and coffee. Squatted in a half-circle on the ground, they soon disposed of it. As we rode forward on the afternoon journey, several of our late guests accompanied us. Among the rest was a huge, bloated savage of more than three hundred pounds weight, christened Le Cochon in consideration of his preposterous dimensions, and certain corresponding traits of his character. The hog bestrode a little white pony, scarce able to bear up under the enormous burden, though by way of keeping up the necessary stimulus the rider kept both feet in constant motion, playing alternately against his ribs. The old man was not a chief. He never had ambition enough to become one. He was not a warrior nor a hunter, for he was too fat and lazy, but he was the richest man in the whole village. Riches among the Dakotas consist in horses, and of these the hog had accumulated more than thirty. He had already ten times as many as he wanted, yet still his appetite for horses was insatiable. Trotting up to me, he shook me by the hand, and gave me to understand that he was a very devoted friend, and then he began a series of most earnest signs and gesticulations, his oily countenance radiant with smiles, and his little eyes peeping out with a cunning twinkle from between the masses of flesh that almost obscured them. Knowing nothing at that time of the sign language of the Indians, I could only guess at his meaning, so I called on Henry to explain it. The hog, it seems, was anxious to conclude a matrimonial bargain. He said he had a very pretty daughter in his lodge whom he would give me, if I would give him my horse. These flattering overtures I chose to reject, at which the hog, still laughing with undiminished good humor, gathered his robe about his shoulders and rode away. Where we encamped that night, an arm of the plat ran between high bluffs. It was turbid and swift as heretofore, but trees were growing on its crumbling banks, and there was a nook of grass between the water and the hill. Just before entering this place, we saw the emigrants encamping at two or three miles' distance on the right, while the whole Indian rabble were pouring down the neighboring hill in hope of the same sort of entertainment which they had experienced from us. In the savage landscape before our camp, nothing but the rushing of the plat broke the silence. Through the ragged boughs of the trees, dilapidated and half-dead, 
we saw the sun setting in crimson behind the peaks of the black hills. The restless bosom of the river was suffused with red. Our white tent was tinged with it, and the sterile bluffs up to the rocks that crowned them partook of the same fiery hue. It soon passed away. No light remained but that from our fire blazing high among the dusky trees and bushes. We lay around it wrapped in our blankets, smoking and conversing until a late hour, and then withdrew to our tent. We crossed a sun-scorched plain on the next morning, the line of old cottonwood trees that fringed the bank of the Platte forming its extreme verge. Nestled apparently close beneath them, we could discern in the distance something like a building. As we came nearer, it assumed form and dimensions, and proved to be a rough structure of logs. It was a little trading fort belonging to two private traders, and originally intended, like all the forts of the country, to form a hollow square with rooms for lodging and storage opening upon the area within. Only two sides of it had been completed. The place was now as ill-fitted for the purposes of defense as any of those little log-houses, which upon our constantly shifting frontier have been so often successfully maintained against overwhelming odds of Indians. Two lodges were pitched close to the fort. The sun beat scorching upon the logs. No living thing was stirring except one old squaw, who thrust her round head from the opening of the nearest lodge, and three or four stout young pups who were peeping with looks of eager inquiry from under the covering. In a moment a door opened, and a little swarthy black-eyed Frenchman came out. His dress was rather singular. His black curling hair was parted in the middle of his head and fell below his shoulders. He wore a tight frock of smoked deerskin, very gaily ornamented, with figures worked in dyed porcupine quills. His moccasins and leggings were also gaudily adorned in the same manner, and the latter had, in addition, a line of long fringes reaching down the seams. The small frame of Richard, for by this name Henry made him known to us, was in the highest degree athletic and vigorous. There was no superfluity, and indeed there seldom is among the active white men of this country, but every limb was compact and hard, every sinew had its full tone and elasticity, and the whole man wore an air of mingled hardihood and buoyancy. Richard committed our horses to a Navajo slave, a mean-looking fellow taken prisoner on the Mexican frontier, and, relieving us of our rifles with ready politeness, led the way into the principal apartment of his establishment. This was a room ten feet square. The walls and floor were of black mud, and the roof of rough timber. There was a huge fireplace made of four flat rocks picked up on the prairie. An Indian bow and otter-skin quiver, several gaudy articles of Rocky Mountain finery, an Indian medicine bag, and a pipe and tobacco pouch garnished the walls, and rifles rested in a corner. There was no furniture except a sort of rough settle covered with buffalo robes, upon which lolled a tall half-breed, with his hair glued in masses upon each temple, and saturated with vermilion. Two or three more mountain men sat cross-legged on the floor. Their attire was not unlike that of Richard himself, but the most striking figure of the group was a naked Indian boy of sixteen, with a handsome face and light active proportions, who sat in an easy posture in the corner near the door. Not one of his limbs moved the breadth of a hair. His eye was fixed immovably, not on any person present, but, as it appeared, on the projecting corner of the fireplace opposite to him.
On these prairies the custom of smoking with friends is seldom omitted, whether among Indians or whites. The pipe, therefore, was taken from the wall, and its great red bowl crammed with the tobacco and shang-sasha mixed in suitable proportions. Then it passed round the circle, each man inhaling a few whiffs and handing it to his neighbor. Having spent half an hour here, we took our leave, first inviting our new friends to drink a cup of coffee with us at our camp a mile farther up the river. By this time, as the reader may conceive, we had grown rather shabby. Our clothes had burst into rags and tatters, and what was worse, we had very little means of renovation. Fort Laramie was but seven miles before us. Being totally averse to appearing in such plight among any society that could boast an approximation to the civilized, we soon stopped by the river to make our toilet in the best way we could. We hung up small looking glasses against the trees and shaved, an operation neglected for six weeks. We performed our ablutions in the plat, though the utility of such a proceeding was questionable, the water looking exactly like a cup of chocolate and the banks consisting of the softest and richest yellow mud, so that we were obliged as a preliminary to build a causeway of stout branches and twigs. Having also put on radiant moccasins procured from a squaw of Richard's establishment, and made what other improvements our narrow circumstances allowed, we took our seats on the grass with a feeling of greatly increased respectability to wait the arrival of our guests. They came, the banquet was concluded, and the pipe smoked. Bidding them adieu, we turned our horses' heads toward the fort. An hour elapsed. The barren hills closed across our front, and we could see no farther, until, having surmounted them, a rapid stream appeared at the foot of the descent running into the plat. Beyond was a green meadow dotted with bushes, and in the midst of these, at the point where the two rivers joined, were the low clay walls of a fort. This was not Fort Laramie, but another post of less recent date, which, having sunk before its successful competitor, was now deserted and ruinous. A moment after, the hill, seeming to draw apart as we advanced, disclosed Fort Laramie itself, its high bastions and perpendicular walls of clay crowning an eminence on the left beyond the stream, while behind stretched a line of arid and desolate ridges, and behind these again, towering aloft seven thousand feet, arose the grim black hills. We tried to ford Laramie Creek at a point nearly opposite the fort, but the stream, swollen with the rains in the mountains, was too rapid. We passed up along its bank to find a better crossing place. Men gathered on the wall to look at us. "'There's Bordeaux,' called Henry, his face brightening as he recognized his acquaintance. "'Him there with the spyglass. And there's old Vasquez and Tucker and May. And by George, there's Simoneau.' This Simoneau was Henry's fast friend, and the only man in the country who could rival him in hunting." We soon found a ford. Henry led the way, the pony approaching the bank with a countenance of cool indifference, bracing his feet and sliding into the stream with the most unmoved composure. At the first plunge the horse sunk low, and the water broke o'er the saddle-bow. We followed. The water boiled against our saddles, but our horses bore us easily through. The unfortunate little mules came near going down with the current cart and all, and we watched them with some solicitude scrambling over the loose round stones at the bottom and bracing stoutly against the stream. All landed safely at last. We crossed a little plain, descended a hollow, 
and riding up a steep bank found ourselves before the gateway of Fort Laramie, under the impending blockhouse erected above it to defend the entrance. End of chapter 8